Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. If you would grab a pen or take out your um, bulletins, I'm going to ask you a question, class. What is prayer? Go for it. What is prayer? Talking to God. Listening to God. You might, in the course of the sermon, write down your own definition. What is prayer? According to um, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 178, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ with the help of the Spirit, with confession of sin and the thankful acknowledgement of His mercy. To say it in a simpler way is to say that prayer is listening to God, talking to God, a real conversation. Prayer is listening to God, talking to God, a real conversation. Augustine, in, uh, the early, uh, in his early 40s, as I mentioned, wrote this 298-page uh, prayer called Confessions. And he says, prayer is this, the thought of you stirs me so deeply that I cannot be content unless I praise you because you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they find rest in you. Augustine goes on to say, My soul is like a house, small for you to enter, but I pray you to enlarge it. It is in ruins, but I ask you to remake it. It contains much that you will not be pleased to see. This I know, and I do not hide. But who but you is to rid my heart of these things? Friends, for the next six weeks, we are going to continue to think about how to learn to rest in prayer, to rest, R-E-S-T. And I want to encourage us using the prayers of Jesus in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, to think about the way we learn to use this acronym of rest to deepen our own prayer life. If you really knew the privilege you had in prayer, you would pray like you were truly the accepted child of your Father in heaven. For if you believe in Christ, indeed you are. Rest, R E S T. Recite God's goodness. Express your neediness. Seek His stillness. Trust His faithfulness. I will say that again and again over the next six weeks. It is an acronym that is not my own. It comes from a young lady. Her name is Asherita Kwekwe. And she has developed this in a lovely little book that I found my wife reading one morning called The Prayers of Rest, reciting God's goodness, expressing our need, seeking His stillness, trusting His faithfulness. And today's passage teaches us one foundational truth about prayer, and there are three principles or truths that emerge from this one foundational principle, and I'm just going to give you the foundation, and then we're going to talk about these three principles in light of it. Here's the foundation. You ready? If you don't believe this, you can't pray as you should. 
The foundational truth is this. Your heavenly Father is good. Your heavenly Father is good. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Notice Jesus is beginning to teach them about prayer, and the first thing he begins with is God's goodness. If you then who are evil, wow. (laughs) If you who are evil, somebody will say, well, Jesus never talked about total depravity. Well, I'm pretty sure that if you then who are evil is as clear of a doctrine of total depravity as there is. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And Jesus is setting up a contrast. He is saying, if, if you, if you who are, you're you, like you, you don't have it all together. You're sinful. If you desire to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven want to give to you everything that is good for you? Paul probably learned this argument from Jesus during those days he lived in Damascus after um, the road to Damascus. Remember in Acts 9-6, Jesus knocked him off of his horse and he was converted and he goes into Arabia for three years to, to... to learn and to pray, and then the Apostle Paul comes back to be the Apostle uh, to uh, the Gentiles. And Paul uses this argument all the time in Romans. If, if sin abounds, how much more does grace abound? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you? In, in C.S. Lewis, uh, in The Great Divorce, he says of Psalm 100, there is but one good, and that is God, and everything else is good when it looks to him and is bad when it turns from him. So you might need to write that down and put it on your mirror in your bathroom. Your heavenly Father is good. And because, point number one, your heavenly Father is good, we can ask Him for anything. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will knock. You will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Notice, first of all, that there are no conditions. Does that surprise you? Ask. Seek. Knock. Why is Jesus so dangerously absolute? The answer is because the crowds, and particularly the apostles to whom Jesus is teaching in this first of his great discourses in Matthew, they have an appalling lack of faith. They have things that they are afraid to ask God for. And you might ask or say to yourself, like I often say to myself, well, I'm not going to ask God for that because I know God would not answer that prayer. But the truth is that many of us don't ask God to answer big prayers because we don't want to be disappointed if it doesn't come true. But what if you really believed 
What if you really believed that his vision for your life was actually far better than your own vision? Like, what if you believe, because most of us do believe that our vision for our life is so good that we've got it all figured out, that we're going to take it in our own hands and we're going to try to accomplish it. But what if we dared to believe that his vision for our life was even better than that because he is a good heavenly father who wants to give you everything that's not bad for you? We, in our infinite wisdom, think we have it all figured out and that we would be heartbroken if God inserted his large and great vision for our lives for the ones that we had planned out and calculated so carefully. Would we dare that we trade up our vision for life for the one that God wants to grant to us? And therefore, would we have the courage to ask and to seek and to knock? You've heard it said that if it's too small to pray about, it's too small to what? Worry about. Well, you could also say that your father will not ignore what you think is too big to pray for. If you think it's too big to pray for, your idolatry or your pride has stolen God's best from you. How do you know that God in his providence wouldn't grant you exactly what you've always wanted? Don't you know that God loves you so much that he wants to give everything that's not bad for you to you? Have you asked? Have you sought him out? Well, I don't knock because Jesus wouldn't answer my prayer because my motives are wrong. Well, friends, maybe it's in the asking and in the seeking and in the knocking that Jesus reorients your motives and your manners, your methods and your madness. Augustine tells us that prayer provides as it's practiced. He writes in the Confessions, Grant me, O Lord, to understand whether a man must know you before he can pray to you or are men to pray to you and lean and learn from you in their prayers. I shall look for you, Lord, by praying to you, Father, and as I pray, I shall believe. He molds us to, into his image when we seek him. He deepens our faith when we ask Prayer is listening to God, and it's talking to God, a real conversation. Do you ask? Because our God, our Heavenly Father, is good, we can ask Him for anything. Number two, just because God is good doesn't mean everything goes as planned. One, um, one summer, my, my oldest brother came home from college, and he was going to be home all summer, and I was 10 years old at the time, and he, he said to me, little brother, we're going to be able to spend some time together this summer. Um, what would you like to do? And being 10 years old at the time, seeing this tougher-than-nails college big brother, I said, Brian, I want to learn how to fight. And he goes, all right, this summer I'm going to teach you how to fight. 
And so that, that summer, every week, we had boxing lessons, fighting lessons. And my brother taught me how to, taught me how to I'm not going to scare you by showing you all my moves, but he would, he, would, he would teach me how to fight. And he would teach me what happens when you get on the ground with somebody. And he, he wanted to instill in me a level of confidence so that if, if, if there was trouble at the playground, I could stand up for my friends and not be intimidated by the kids who were bigger than me. And one, and one day we met to do our little fighting boxing challenge. And, and he said to me, to me and he said, hey, um, have you ever been hit so hard that you couldn't see straight? I said, no, bro. He said, have you ever, have you ever been clocked in the jaw in a way that you couldn't tell which way was up and which way was down? No, bro. Have you ever been hit or fallen and hit your head or have you been punched so hard that you couldn't, you, you saw three of the people in front of you? I said, no, that's never happened to me. And he goes, today's your lucky day. <laughs> and I, I am going to hit you that hard. And I'm going to do it because I want you to feel what it's like to get your bell rung. And I want you to know what it's like to be hit so hard with me here in this safe place. So that you know how to keep going when you're standing before your opponent. Get ready, little brother. Friends, sometimes God hits you so hard that you do not know which way is up. But that is not God, the angry judge that has hit you. That is God, your loving heavenly father. He is not punishing you. He is preparing you. He is molding you into his own image. Just because God is good does not mean everything goes as planned. Proverbs 3.12 says, the Lord reproves those whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12.6 says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. John wrote in Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous. On Tuesday, um, January 3rd, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries, uh, Ed McCauley, uh, Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, and uh, Pete Fleming, they were uh, landing on a small strip of uh, an island, uh, uh, an area of Ecuador, surrounded by jungles. And it was a dangerous landing, and for years they had been dreaming of and planning for the time when they could reach the Anca Indian tribe of Ecuador. And they knew the dangers. They had discussed the logistics and the possibility of leaving their wives as widows. And for three months they had been flying over the area, and they dropped gifts, and they were, they were shouting greetings. And when they landed, they, they built a hut, and they waited for the, the Ancas to come. And, of course, Elizabeth Elliot, the, one of the wives and the other girls, they knew that, that they might become widows because of the courage of their husbands to go and preach the gospel to this unreached tribe. And Elizabeth Elliot wrote later that they went simply because they knew that they belonged to God, because he was their creator and their redeemer. And they had no choice but to willingly obey him. And that meant obeying his command to take the good news to every nation. And so on Friday, January 6th, three Ancas, one man and two women approached them. 
And they exchanged greetings, and they, the missionaries showed them rubber bands, and they gave them yo-yos and balloons, and they even took one of the men up in the airplane. And two days later, on Sunday, January the 8th, they were due to radio in at 4.30. But the radio was silent. There was no message. A plane was sent to look for them, and then a rescue party and four bodies were recovered, all lanced to death. The fifth was never found. They were ambushed. These five men were martyrs for Christ. They were married. Four of them were fathers. One of their wives was pregnant. Her three-year-old was heard to tell the new crying baby, never mind you. When we get to heaven, I'll show you which one is daddy. Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. He had seen through the consumerism and the lies that so many of us believe. He had seen the emptiness of all that the world offers. He had realized that the far greater value of the new creation that God promised was even worth his entire adult life. Spent on the mission field to communicate the good news of the gospel. And he recited God's promises to himself all the way into the jungles of Ecuador. And the morning that he died, the rescue party found his diary. And this is what he wrote. I walked out onto the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious even, to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze in glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, and sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I raise my voice again for him, if only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in his mercy he shall give me a host of children, i.e. converts, that I may lead them through the vast star field to explore his delicacies, whose fingers set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see him, touch his garments, smile into his eyes, ah, then not stars nor children shall matter, only himself. O Jesus, master and sinner and end of all, how long before that glory is yours which has so long awaited you? Now there is no thought of you among men. Then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised. Then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven. Take your crown, subdue your kingdom, enthrall your creatures. And even through great sacrifice, Jim Elliot recited God's goodness. Just because God is good does not mean everything goes as planned. Rick McGrath is the father of four. He's, married for 20, he's been married for 22 years. For 12 of those years, he struggled with an addiction to pornography that he hid from his wife and his close friends. When his wife, Jody, found out, she felt betrayed. And to cope with the pain emotionally, she distanced herself from him. She's embarrassed by his addiction. 
She didn't tell anyone, and she suffered in silence under the weight and shame she felt for his sin. What role did she play, if any? How does she find courage to go on in the darkness to repair her relationship with her husband? What does she do with the anger she feels toward him and toward the church who seems helpless to pierce his addiction? They stay together because of their kids, but they don't have an intimate friendship. It's like the pause button was pushed on a movie that started out so great about them, and they don't know what to do next. Sandra Bullison teaches French at the local high school. She pours her life into her students. Everyone loves Mrs. Burleson. She takes a class to France every summer, and two of her students now live in France. Beneath her beloved status as a French teacher, she carries the burden of chronic anxiety. She became a Christian through a ministry in high school called Young Life, and she got connected with the local church, but she never experienced the intimacy of her heavenly father because of how horrible her earthly one was. Her parents never went to church. They pushed her into sports and extracurricular activities. They put pressure on her, and she never learned how to appreciate prayer because she never had much of a relationship with God after her conversion. And she pours her life into her work because it's an easy place to find affirmation for her. Rick is stuck. Jody is mad. Sandra is exhausted. Weary, burdened wanderers, there is rest for thee. Where? Just because God is good doesn't mean everything goes as planned. And that's why the turnaround in your life begins when you are able, number three, to recite God's goodness. When Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, Stephen speaks to the crowd about God's goodness through redemptive history. But what made his sermon, his speech, so convicting to the Pharisees is that they didn't like that God was good. They wanted him to be the judge. And the reason why many of us don't cry out to him and recite God's goodness back to him because we still feel like he is the judge. But don't you know that in Christ, God becomes your father. He adopts you as his own child and he looks upon you and smiles upon you with the same joy with which he smiles upon his perfect son. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more how clearly the evil is left in his heart. But when a man is getting worse, he understands his badness less and less. And perhaps that's why you have a hard time reciting God's goodness, because you think you're perhaps the one who's really good. Or that you have to get to a level of goodness before your father can really hear you. And maybe in these weeks before Pentecost, maybe the Holy Spirit just wants you to remind yourself that God is good. And he is a heavenly father who loves you. And who, when he sees you coming to pray for him, is not doing this. Ooh, he's doing this. He cannot wait to embrace you and hear your prayers, however small or massive they are. 
Stephen recited God's goodness, and it led even to his death. And when a sinner comes to understand the grace of God and the majesty of God's character, they see with piercing clarity, as Jonathan Edwards has written, that there is a divine and there is a superlative, far greater glory in these things. There is an excellency that is of a vastly higher kind and is more sublime in nature than any other thing, a glory greatly distinguished from them all that is earthly and temporal. Just think about the things that Jesus has provided for you. Jesus gives marriage its deepest meaning. Jesus gives our work a deeper joy. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for you. Jesus pleased his heavenly Father on your behalf. He learned perfect obedience through what he suffered. He achieved his victory, the resurrection from the dead. He showed his wealth, the wealth of God's love and grace of sinners on the cross. He showed his own love for us in dying for us. He canceled the legal demands of the law that were set against us by fulfilling them for us. He became a ransom for you. He provides forgiveness for your sins. Jesus' work is the basis of your justification. Jesus takes away our condemnation. He abolished circumcision and all the rituals as a basis for salvation, and he exchanges for it the beauty of his grace. The Father protects us from sin and from death. The Father creates a people with a passion for his greater kingdom. The Holy Spirit brings us to faith and, he, and sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit gives us a clear conscience. The Holy Spirit makes us more and more like Jesus. The Spirit enables us to live for Christ and not for ourselves. Should I go on? The Spirit enables us to live by faith in him. The Spirit empowers us to die to sin and live to righteousness. This is all that he has given to you. Jesus will one day completely heal us from all of our moral and our physical sickness. Jesus gives us eternal life, all those who believe in him. Jesus will deliver us from the present evil age. He reconciles us to God. Jesus establishes our union with the Father by his spirit. Jesus provides us confident access to come to the Father in prayer. Jesus is our sympathetic and helpful priest. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament laws and sacrifices by becoming our eternal high priest. Jesus frees us from the futility of sin. He delivers us from the slavery of sin. Jesus calls us to follow his example in humility and costly love. Shall I go on? Jesus secures our resurrection from the dead. We too will one day be raised. Jesus destroyed the hostility that was set against us by our sin. Jesus ransomed the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for his glory's sake. Jesus gathers all of his sheep from around the world by his spirit to the glory of his Father. He rescues us from final judgment. He gains his joy through our salvation as we delight in him. Jesus redeems the worst evil in history for your good. As Augustine said, even those most gifted with speech cannot find words to describe him, how beautiful he is. And he is your heavenly father. 
who says, come ask, seek, knock. And would you this morning, if you've never asked or seeked or knocked, would you do just that? Would you say, Lord, show me how to recite your goodness this week and show me the beauty of your love for a sinner like me? Because Jesus wants to give you everything that's not bad for you. And he promises to do that. And as you come to the table this morning, come basking in the beauty of Jesus' work, the Father's love, the Spirit's indwelling power in your heart. And run to your heavenly Father in prayer who welcomes you with open arms through the good work of his Son. Amen.